Good morning or afternoon or night, I guess, church at home. This is part two of our home study on Ephesians, and it opens up with a belter of a verse. Uh, Check out chapter four, verse one, where Paul says, I urge you to live a life worthy of your calling. So before we jump into the challenges Paul gives us, um, take a quick reread of the final prayer from chapter 3, 14 to 21. Take a few minutes to do that. So Paul seems to want us to know that each of us gets our very name and our very essence from God. Um, Paul prays that we are strengthened in his spirit, in our inner being, and that Christ will be in our hearts, and that the church will be filled with love and will know just how amazing Christ's love is. And then to know truly that it is a, it surpasses any knowledge or earthly power. And then bouncing on from that, he says, live a life worthy of your calling, that calling. Um, so if you're studying this with friends or if you're just on your own, take a few moments to reflect on it. Maybe write down what that looks like in your life today. What does living a life worthy of your calling look like today? So from verse 2 to 13, Paul goes through a list of what he considers to be a good life, one that is Christ-like. And he explains that humility and gentleness and patience and making allowances for others when they are at fault is the key to this. And Paul is building up to urge us to be united in spirit. There's that issue and that theme of unity again, peacefully bonded together. And if you just look at his list of virtues, humility rather than arrogance and gentleness rather than anger and annoyance or taking things by force, making allowances for people's faults, being merciful rather than holding people to blame. Um, So, hey, pause here and take a minute to think about how we're doing with this. Are we more often humble or gentle or merciful or are we more likely to be arrogant and get easily angered and hold blame? So then Paul argues that because God is overall and in all and living through all, that's verses five and six, we are called to one singular and wonderful future. And that, and he's not saying that we're the same and that we should follow exactly the same job or hobbies as everyone else. Not at all. We're all unique humans and we have the divine image of the Father in us. Um, so we're going to have different roles and strengths, but we should be united in that focus to one pursuit. And that's to know God and to follow Christ and love the world. So take a little bit of time now to read through Ephesians 4, 11 to 16. And just think about Paul's lists of, list of gifts that Christ gives. Um, you know, if you're all unsure or unhappy, then I mean, where do you think you are? You know, if you're not sure if you're one of those, think focus on verse 16, that he makes the whole body fit together. Each part does its special work to help the other parts grow. Um, and how does that verse encourage you in light of the rest of the chapter? And then moving on from that, our foundation as individuals and as the body of Christ is found in God's promise. That wonderful line from verse 4, there is one body, that's the church, and one spirit of Christ, just as you have been called to one glorious future. One glorious future is something that we can hold on to today, isn't it? Um, And Paul contrasts the world with Christ. He urges us to be children of the light, 
not living for darkness anymore. He goes on to say that the world is obsessed with lustful pleasures and impurity, and that is not what Christ teaches. And so he urges us for the final part of chapter 4 to focus on these new things that Christ has brought. So verse 22, he says, throw off your old sinful nature and form a way of life. And verse 24, put on your new nature, righteous and holy. Verse 25 to 31, stop telling lies, tell the truth, don't let anger control you, make up, don't use abusive language, let your words be helpful and encouraging, get rid of bitterness and rage and anger and harsh words, slander and all other types of evil behaviour. And instead, be kind and tender-hearted and forgiving. And this is all really important, and it's the foundation of our individual hearts in Christ and the way we should be behaving towards each other and how we should view the rest of the body, which is, of course, the church, and further the rest of the world. And it's really important to understand this chapter and all those virtues that he's just listed before we move on to chapter 5, which is famous or infamous, your pick, because it's discussing husbands and wives. So pause this and take a couple of minutes just to reread those closing verses from chapter 4 before we move on to chapter 5, and just think about what stands out to you. And then here we go, chapter 5, the controversial stuff. Now, it's easy to look at Ephesians 5 and some Paul's other letters and dismiss it all as some kind of draconian sexism, an old culture from an ancient age. They were clearly wrong, obviously. But if you, and I says us, not you, if, if we dismiss this offhand for its use of language that might not sound inclusive enough, I guess would be the word, we are actually missing a major point. Because if you look back at the end of chapter 4, with all his list of virtues, and then read the first verse in chapter 5, it's all about being more like Christ. And what does Christ do best? So Ephesians 5.1, follow God's example. Therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And the key here is, gave himself up for us. Everything about imitating Christ is based on selflessness, serving others, thinking about the other person before we think about ourselves. And with this in mind, start reading what Paul's writing about family dynamics. Look at verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. See that before any mention of men's roles and women's roles, he says to all of us to submit to one another because of Christ. So Ephesians 5, 21 to 28, obviously can cause contention, but only really if we're adamant that being the head of the body means being the boss and cracking the whip and being the superior tyrant. And it doesn't. For Paul to say that the husband is the head of the family, like Christ is the head of the church, means that the husband is responsible for giving of himself, laying himself, laying himself down to death if need be for the good of his wife and children, and to hold the family together by his service and submission, not to think about himself and his own fame or pleasure or status, but the well-being of his family. And in Paul's culture, and in the Roman, Greco-Roman and Jewish culture all around that, women really were seen as second class. 
and the fame and standing of the man was a real idol to these guys. And just as it might be today, the fame and standing and success of your, of your men might still be a huge idol. So for Paul to say that Christian men have to love their family, their wives, like Christ, it actually means he's asking them to put aside the ambition of being the top guy. And this idea that women and children were kind of useless and inferior and life is all about serving ourselves. And in fact, serve your wife and children and love them, loving them as they love themselves, even if it means giving up everything for their well-being, like Christ. And so this verse for wives to submit to their husbands as to the church of Christ carries a similar inference. Serve your husbands, serve your children, your household not thinking selfishly about yourself. So if your husband loves you and serves you like Christ would, not thinking about himself first, then if you submit and serve, not thinking about yourself first, the household will be a place of loving service and selflessness, thoughtfulness and caring, not individual ambition and arguments and anger. Now, obviously, in Paul's world, women didn't have the careers that they do, we do today, and husbands would not ever conceive of giving up their work to look after their children and take paternity leave like we might be able to do today. But but just look at what he's actually saying. He's urging families to be as Christ-like as possible, which is dominated by a selfless way of living. So take a couple of minutes. What do you make of these verses? Do you think they are outdated and useless? Do they challenge you to think about your family dynamics a little differently and how you behave in your home? Do you agree? Do you disagree with me? Do you disagree with Paul? Have a think. Um, and finally, we've come to chapter 6. And before we even get to the full armour of God, Paul actually continues his thoughts from chapter 5. He urges children to respect their parents, which is always good for the parents. But he also urges the fathers to bring the children up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Again, this would mean love, compassion, forgiveness, mercy, kindness, challenging not just pandering to, and because children would be seen as like lesser humans, he's asking them to look back at how Jesus would treat children when they came to see him. You know, remember what happens when children come to see Jesus. The disciples think that he would want them to get as far away from him as possible, but on contrary, Jesus loves them and he wants to show them the best model of humanity he can. It is the responsibility of the parent to train and raise children so that they can grow into loving, selfless, hardworking, respectful and kind adults, just like the Lord modelling Christ. And then, of course, he then talks about masters and slaves. And I don't think Paul's endorsing slavery, but he's not an idiot. Slavery is as much of the economy in the ancient world as having a work contract would be part of the economy now. It's so much a part of their economic culture that getting rid of it like that would have been impossible, even if it would have been desirable. And, but then look again at what Paul is actually saying and look at the perspective he's encouraging from the Christians. Ephesians 6 verses 5 to 9, have a read of it and ask yourself, what is Paul actually asking slaves and masters to do and why? I hope you noticed. Um, work for your masters as if to the Lord, thinking not about yourself. And then later on, for masters, treat your slaves in the same way, i.e. not thinking about yourself or considering them as subhuman. 
in both cases, again, he's encouraging a distinct selfless countercultural point of view. If you're a slave, but in Christ, you can be a slave and you can work harder than anyone else for your earthly masters and impress them with your hard work, not to gain favour, but simply to show love so that you're not a burden. And in Christ, if you own slaves, he's saying you should be treating them in love as fellow humans, as you yourself are under Christ. And this would have been really surprising for most slave owners to do, especially Roman slave owners who culturally considered slaves to be items to be used and abused at a whim. They are not considered people. So for Christians, once again, Paul is pushing us to serve and to submit and to love outside of ourselves and outside of our own fame or fortune, to love others as we love ourselves and to defy any abusive cultural norms. And I really think Ephesians could end there. Uh, He's built a framework for the Ephesus church and for us as future readers. He's explained how Christ served and died for us and how we should aim to live in the same way with practical advice for families and for business. Why does he end with this famous armour of God passage? Uh, Paul, as we know, had a hard life. He was in prison multiple times. He was beaten up, exiled. How is he actually getting on with it? Now, obviously, we can say, well, he had the Lord, he prayed lots, he had support from other Christians, etc. But the final part of Ephesians 6, takes on, taken on its own, misses some of the weight it really has. The Ephesians 6 famously mentions these six things. There's salvation, there's righteousness, there's truth, faith, the spirit, the gospel of peace. Paul is using a picture to list these key virtues of being a Christian, the makeup of what it takes to hold firm in your faith when everything else is going to hell. He begins with salvation, the key to new life, then righteousness. If we've read the rest of Ephesians, we're going to know what this righteousness looks like. It's modelled in Christ's selfless example. And to remind yourself of this truth all the time, and then to have faith in it, and finally to be bolstered by Christ's spirit, and therefore to be able to go out and live in the gospel of peace. Read through Ephesians 6 and the armour of God. And think about it in light of the rest of the letter of Ephesians. How do you feel about the armour of God as a, as a visual aid? Does that encourage you? And how can it help us as a church during times of trouble? Thanks for listening, guys. I hope that gave you something to think about and to study. I'll be doing a few more of these, so all comments and questions will be helpful. Um, have a lovely day.